Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. This small booklet is the sum of three sermons delivered by the Prince of Preachers on the subject of assurance. Spurgeon directed these sermons to Christians who question their faith and live with doubt concerning their salvation pointing to Christ and Christ alone as the author and finisher of our faith and the guarantee of our salvation. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. Hello again and welcome back to the Ardent Archives. We are busy discussing the book Assurance by Charles Spurgeon, a collection of three sermons uh, given by Spurgeon on the topic of assurance. I am one of your hosts, Pastor Drew Bieber. I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Josh McDaniel. And in this discussion, we are looking at the second uh, sermon delivered in the book, which is uh, simply titled Full Assurance. And so this uh, sermon was actually delivered on April 28th, 1861. If you recall, the first sermon in the book was actually delivered in 1864. Mm -hmm. and this one was actually delivered earlier, although it comes second in the book. And so, um, again, I do appreciate whoever put this together. I, I want to say it was the guys over at monergism.com. Again, can't recommend them enough. Go check them out. You'll find a lot of really great resources. I'm pretty sure they're the ones who put these sermons together. And although uh, this second sermon in the book was actually historically delivered first, I do appreciate the fact that they put this one second. Yeah. Because in that first one, we dealt with what actually is assurance, what is the true position of assurance, as Spurgeon put it. And in this one, we're dealing with the issue of full assurance, and specifically whether or not full assurance is something that the Christian can attain to. And so um, we are uh, going to jump right into this sermon. And this sermon was based on the text of Psalm 35. Three And so, Josh, do you want to read that for us? Yeah. So, again, I'll read from the King James first, uh, which is what Spurgeon would have read from. And then I will read it from uh, from the Legacy Standard Bible. Uh, so, Psalm 35, 3, and this is actually the second part of verse 3. But King James says, Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. And just simply put in the Legacy Standard Bible says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. And so there's a larger context here uh, because like I said, this is the second part of verse three from Psalm 35. And he Spurgeon makes a, a point of it right there at the beginning. The psalmist, when he wrote these words, was surrounded by many and furious enemies. And he pleads with God to take hold on shield and buckler and to come forth for his defense. Yet he feels that there is only one thing which God hath need to do in order to remove his fears and to make him strong in the day of conflict. Say to my soul, I am thy salvation. And I'll read the context to you. I'll just read the first three verses of Psalm 35, uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me, fight against those who fight against me, take hold of a shield and large shield, and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. And so he's saying there that even in the midst of uh, all these furious enemies and the conflicts and and the things that could be coming against him and the protection that he needs. The psalmist feels that there's only one thing which God needs to do to remove his fears, and that's to give him what Spurgeon classifies as full assurance. Right, right. And so he, uh, again, breaks this sermon up, and I, I really like the way sermon, uh, or excuse me, Spurgeon breaks his sermons up. Uh, typically, there's three parts, um, and he works his way through those three parts, kind of each building upon mm -hmm. the other. And so he says, um, in this subject of full assurance that I shall address you this morning, without preface, I shall first bid you hear the objectors. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I shall beg you to hear the text. And then I shall request that you hear 
the preacher. And so those are the kind of the three sections he has in the sermon. Here are the objectors, those who uh, take issue with this concept of, of having full assurance and Christians attaining full assurance. Then I want you to hear the text. What does the text actually tell us Mm -hmm. about full assurance? And then I'm going to ask you to hear the preacher, obviously the preacher being himself. I want you to hear what I have to say about uh, this issue of full assurance. And so in this first section on hearing the objectors, uh, Spurgeon has quite a bit of fun with with this. I imagine that if we had been there, if we had listened to him live, we've got a couple of chuckles out of this. Oh, yeah. And uh, you're familiar with the uh, like the Thug Life videos. Yeah. Right. Especially. So, you know, just a little bit of context. Sometimes when there's like a sick burn, that's kind of a. You know what the kids say these days, as far as whether you know when Those you say kids. something, when you say something that you know is uh, pointed and it cuts and it's you know uh, witty and all those sorts of things. You know they call it a, a sick burn, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so when there's a sick burn, they you know they sort of you know edit over it and put some glasses on it and you know some whatever, and they say you know this is a thug life. And so, anyways, all this to say that some people have made what they call reformed thug life videos where you know some of those might be uh like paul washer you know saying saying you know why are you clapping you know i'm talking about you and then you know it's just that short little clip and then you know the video ends and you see you know paul washer standing there with some glasses and you know a chain or whatever and you know it says reform thug life or rc sprawl you know saying what's wrong with you people yeah and you see the same thing he's they're giving some sick reformed burns and so i imagine that several points in this section of his sermon where he's talking about objective uh, objectors would have been filled with sick burns. Yeah. If, that, and if that technology had been around back then, yes, it would have absolutely been. There would have been some viral clips of Spurgeon uh, uh, dishing out these sick burns against the Romanists, against uh, certain of his own camp, certain mm-hmm. Calvinists, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and so clearly, you know, you can tell that Spurgeon is having you know, he's having fun pointing these things out, but he's also taking these things very seriously. Yeah. That there's some issue with uh, with the Roman Catholics when it comes to this issue of full assurance. There's some issue with the nominal Christians, right? Those who or, or those who aren't religious at all, you know, when they yeah. ha- uh, object to things like full assurance, there's yeah. some serious issues uh, when they do that. And so let's deal with this first one, right? This first one, um, the, the first objection he deals with is that Assurance, full assurance is impossible. Yeah, and he kind of hit on that in the last sermon that we kind of broke down a little bit. He, you know, because I'm sure it was, I've heard that said plenty of times um, in my encounters in my life. I'm sure Spurgeon heard it said plenty of times. And so he dealt with it not just in this sermon, but he also in, I guess, in a smaller part, not quite as pointed, he dealt with it as well. And he, you know, the idea that that it is impossible to have full assurance has been around for a long time. Yeah. But um, he pretty quickly and pretty handily dispels this. He says um, to this, sir, I reply thus, you say it is impossible. I say it is not only possible, but has been certainly enjoyed by the people of God. You know, doth the Spirit of God teach men to pray impossibilities? And his point there is that David is praying for full assurance. Yes. Say unto my soul, I am your salvation. Give me full assurance. Say it unto my soul to the very depth of who I am. Say it to everything that I can be, that I am your salvation. Give me full assurance. If David is praying it, and it's in the Scripture, it certainly cannot be an impossibility. But but David was just a man, Josh. He was. So so when he says the Spirit of God teaching men to pray impossibilities, David's not the Spirit of God. He's just a man. What is he talking about? Ah, what is he talking about? Is he praying in impossibilities? Is he just a man? Is he doing those kinds of things? Again, I will draw us back to what was said in the previous sermon, and, and, and I'll, I'll We'll bring it back to the sermon here. Again, it's it's in the Bible, This not just here in Psalm 35, 3, that say unto my soul, I am your salvation, but also in the previous verse that we read, Ephesians 1, 13, he makes it clear that if you hear and if you believe, the Holy Spirit will seal you. It is not impossible to have it full insurance because 
The Spirit has told us, the Scripture has told us, you can have full assurance. You, If you hear, if you receive, and then you believe, you trust, you have faith in Christ, then the Spirit seals you. And to question that you can have full assurance, or to question that there is a sealing there, is to not actually question your own faith or your own works. It's not just to to say it's impossible just for me because I am not able to ascend that mountain. It's actually to call into a question. It's actually to call into conflict. Hey, maybe the spirit can't do this. Yes. Yeah. And that's absolutely true. I was kind of going for the fact that although David was a man, Mm -hmm. these words are in inspired scripture. Mm -hmm. And so David Mm -hmm. was praying these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so you know, um, yes, the spirit, uh, the, the scripture makes very clear that the spirit is the one who does the sealing. The spirit is the one who brings about assurance that we are passive in that, that act of granting assurance. Um, but, but the reality is, is that when David prays these things, we have to remember that David is praying these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And not only is he praying these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but these things are put in inspired text as a model for us to pray these things as well. And so when he says the spirit of God teaching men to pray impossibilities, he's pointing out the fact that these are inspired words from the Holy Spirit. And why would the Holy Spirit uh, through David teach us to pray these things like saying to my soul, I am your salvation. Right. If this if this was an impossibility, why would it be an inspired text? Why why would David be praying these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Right. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. The next group that he jumps into is the Roman Catholics, the popes, yes. the cardinals, all these kinds of guys. And just as a as a quick timeline, right? So Spurgeon delivers this sermon in in eighteen in the eighteen sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Protestant Reformation had only taken place a few hundred years before that. Yeah. I mean, right. so and it had only made its way to England, you know, even in a, a shorter time than that. Yeah, right? I mean, it's it's long enough to have been established, but I mean, still the 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 chaos that comes from the Roman Catholic Church is pretty substantial there. Oh yeah, and it's actually still very substantial all over the world. Yeah, um, we do kind of forget that in Protestant world that that um, well, especially in the United States where we do not have you know our. Um, you know, our founding era was clearly marked by Protestantism, yeah. specifically yeah, yeah, Puritan, yeah, 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 yeah. Reformed, Calvinistic Protestantism. Uh, whereas in places like England and France and and Italy and you know, especially in lots of areas of Europe, um, is th- their sort of um, uh, sort of the the religious marks on on their history is is largely Roman it's Catholic, almost almost completely, yeah, Roman Catholic. Uh, and so he he addresses them, and he kind of this is one of those where you, you kind of get the drop the mic thing. He, he says a thing, and and he he'll moves on from it, and you feel like, man, he's sick what else? Burn. Yeah, sick bird. What else can he say to it? <laughs> he says. Uh, he 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 talks, of course. Uh, of course, the papist does not like full assurance, and why? The Pope and his priest would have a lean larder if full assurance were well preached. In other words, they wouldn't have near as much as they have now. They'd be a little bit leaner around the larder if they were, <laughs> uh, if they had full assurance. Only conceive, my brethren, if the Roman Catholic could get the full assurance of salvation, surely the cardinals would hardly find money enough to buy their red hats. For where... Were purgatory then? Purgatory is an impossibility if full assurance be possible. And and we've looked at it here at our church. We've we've looked a lot at the 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 life of Martin Luther. I fought against the just the way the church would manipulate uh, people and and would would work so hard to to try and twist the screws on these poor people and and get them to give money hand over fist to the church and. The amount of money that would come in was obscene, and Luther would fight against it. And they did that. They capitalized on it by using things like purgatory, by using doctrines that would, by design, diminish the reality that there can be full assurance in Christ. Right, right. And if there's not full assurance in Christ, well, how do I get full assurance? We'll give us money, and we'll yes. give you things that can... And, and of course... 
Luther fought against it. And Spurgeon is, <laughs> he makes light of just, it's so evident and it's so clear that they don't like full assurance. These are objectors who don't like full assurance because full assurance does, it, it hits them in their pocketbooks. Right, right. And, and, and buddy, you don't hit the Pope in his pocketbook. Don't you dare do that because they're padding it for all kinds of pleasures here in this world, but they will deny the doctrine of full assurance. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think Spurgeon was, was extremely uh, serious when he said these things. Mm-hmm. I think that he, yeah. you know, uh, was not simply being sarcastic for sarcasm's sake. Like he was actually trying to illustrate the point that no, like this doctrine of purgatory, this Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, like this is a serious yeah. thing. And their denial of full assurance is also a serious thing. But with that, I think it's clear that Spurgeon had a sense of humor. I, I, oh, yeah. I can imagine him saying this and the entire congregation just erupting in laughter. Yeah. Right? And I imagine he had good comedic timing and different things like that. Obviously, uh, maybe one day we'll, we'll find out for sure. But let this be a good lesson to us that even when addressing serious subjects, uh, Humor is, is is a good thing. And humor is even be. a good thing to, to include in our in our preaching as well. Absolutely. Sometimes humor will will stick in your mind and will help you recognize a point. Oh yes, uh, yes. greater than just an always somber tone. Uh, and I and Spurgeon was again. He's the prince of preachers. He knew how to utilize even humor to the best of its implications. Another group, or the, the next group, he talks about the persons who object to this doctrine are generally people who have no religion at all. Yes, yes. And so why would they reject this doctrine? What does it matter to them? Well, obviously, if I hold no religion, if I hold no assurance, well, then those people over there who have a religion, I mean, they can't be any better off than I am. Right. And they can have a Bible. Well, I could own a Bible, so I've got as much assurance as that person over there if you can't attain full assurance. They've got hymn books. Well, I can own a hymn book as long as that grants me only as much assurance as they can have. I mean, and we see this in our day too. Mm -hmm. It's always fascinated me how much atheists uh, obsess over issues of Christian doctrine, how Mm -hmm. much they obsess over the things of God. And it's like, you deny that he even exists. Why do you care? But that's the reality. They care because in order to prop up this feeling that like, no, I'm okay in my denial of God, right? Uh, Romans 1 spells it out that we're actually uh, actively suppressing the knowledge of God in, in unrighteousness. And so in order to feel good about the fact that I'm suppressing that truth, we go, ah, oh, but I'm no better than he is. And actually what you believe is kind of dumb. And well, the reality is God can't exist because science and and this, that, the other thing, and yada, 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 blah, 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 blah. Right. And, and, and it's just like, ultimately, why do you, why do you even care? You don't think he exists, so why does it matter? Um, and like you said, that's, that's one of the things he lays out. Uh, generally, people who have no religion and who want, therefore, to make themselves a little easy by the notion that nobody has any more than they have. And uh, he goes on to say, your easy churchgoers and your chapel goers, your ladies and gentlemen who think that religion consists in buying a prayer book, who imagine that they have... Uh, or to have a book of psalms and hymns constitutes godliness. You're fine folks who to whom religion is as much a matter of fashion as some new color or new form of dress. These people having no vitality in their godliness, never having a religion which could either make them cry or sing, never having godliness uh, enough either to make them miserable or to make them blessed, these think that there is nothing more in godliness than they can get themselves. And so they look out on the landscape and they think, well, if, if I can't get it, then it's, it must not be real. Right. If I can't get full assurance, I don't have full assurance. So it must not be a real thing. Oh, I can get a hymn book. Oh, I can get, you know, I, I can go to church. Yeah. Oh, I can, you know, I can pray the sinner's prayer. Oh, I can, I can do this. I can do that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm reminded of, um, uh, ignorance in the Pilgrim's Progress. You know, yeah. I, I know my Lord's will. Uh, yeah. I've lived a good life. I pay. I pay tithes. I give alms. I do all yeah. these things. And it's just like he was so wrapped up in the fact that well, because I can do these things, that must mean my faith is real. Yeah, I have because just as I, much because as I those can't, other people. Because yeah. I can't grasp full assurance, then mm-hmm. it must 
it must not be real. Right. And and so he he does walk through that. He also brings up another objector, and he very quickly says, there's, he says, there's another, uh, another objector. He says, I'm afraid, sir. I'm afraid of your preaching full assurance because so many persons have boasted of it. And they have been yes. vile pretenders. He says, well, what about these people who, who are pretending to believe in the gospel? And they say they have full assurance. You can't have full assurance because they're vile pretenders. And, and, and he kind of says, well, that, that's, that's foolishness. You know, if someone, and he, he uses the illustration, uh, he says, because some pass upon you the base forged banknote. Will you therefore burn those which really come from the bank? Yes. He says, no. He says, the, the fact that there's a counterfeit doesn't mean that there's not a real thing. He says, you know, just because there's It, it presupposes pe- the existence yeah, of the original. It actually says, no, there must be a real yep. thing if there's a counterfeit. And so he, he quickly says, no, you can't say that because there's vile pretenders, the words that Spurgeon uses, because there's vile pretenders, there cannot be full assurance because they pretend to have full assurance there can't actually be real no 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 they're pretending to have something that is real they're pretending actually almost is a proof that you can have full assurance right, right. because they desire it they want it and that's one of the things dr walter martin uh, laid out when it comes to dealing with the cults if you're not familiar with dr walter, walter martin one of his uh his his major works is the book the kingdom of the cults mm-hmm. where he kind of breaks down these different uh christian uh cults and uh, one of the points that he makes is that, you know, often people will look at the world of the cults and they will say that because there's all these sort of fake religions, uh, there's all these fake Jesuses, right? You've got the Jesus of, uh, of Islam, you've got the Jesus of Christianity, you've got the Jesus of Mormonism, you've got the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. Because there's all these Jesuses, that means that, that none of them can be real. Obviously, Jesus isn't real. And one of the points he makes is that, no, 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 the, the, the existence of the counterfeit, the counterfeit is proving the fact that there is an original that exists because there's a, a mm-hmm. fake copy. That means that that fake copy had to be based on something that's actually real. Mm-hmm. So this sort of fake Jesus presupposes the fact that this fake Jesus was copied to some degree off of a real Jesus. And he's Spurgeon is laying that out with this issue of assurance. Just because people have fake assurance, well, that fake assurance is based on something that is real. Yeah. Like you said, they're pretending to have something that is real. They don't have it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Right. Right. He goes, he briefly hits another group of people. He says there are some people who uh, are objectors and they say, well, if, if you preach full assurance, then people will never do good works. Yes. And, and he says, no, that's, he said, that's not how this works. He says, men never do any good works till they are justified by faith. Yes. He said, those who cry down good works as the ground of hope are the very men who work with all their might in the service of Christ. And as assurance is but faith come to perfection, the assured man will always be the most industrious man. And and we've seen that to be true across the board. When you feel like when you feel like my salvation is resting upon my works, you get very fatigued. Yeah. But when you recognize my works are living out my faith in Christ, you work with all your might. Yes. With joy. And that's that's the reality. It's it's and he he makes short work. I, I think he makes short work of that claim. And then the last yeah, one right, real quick, uh one of the things he says on on this, he says, A well grounded assurance is the most active worker in the field, the most valiant warrior mm-hmm. in the battle, and the most patient sufferer in the furnace. There is none so active as the assured. Right. And so that's the reality. Yeah. People make the mistake of saying that, well, if I have full assurance, that means that uh, I can just um, sit back and do nothing. I can just sit back and do nothing. Uh, and it's just like, well, no, the fact that you have assurance is what like that's actually the fuel to your fire that actually makes you go and do things. Yeah, it drives you to do something. Yes. Uh, and, and so he says you've actually argued you're actually arguing for the opposite of what really happens. Right. Right. Uh, and then the last one, this is very he says. I have one class of objectors to answer, and I'll have done. There's a certain breed of 
Calvinist. Dun, no, I'm dun, a Calvinist. Dun. I'm a Calvinist, and so are you. Yes. So wait a minute. You mean so we, you and I, we don't preach full assurance? Is that is that because we're Calvinists? Is that what he's saying there? Well, he says there's a certain breed yeah. of Calvinists. Not every Calvinist. Spurgeon himself was a Calvinist, right. despite what some people say and think. Spurgeon was a very proud, as you mentioned in our first discussion, a very proud Calvinist. Mm-hmm. He held to the doctrines of grace. He believed that what Calvin taught was consistent with biblical truth and that it actually was what is found in the pages of Scripture. And so he is dealing with a certain breed of Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And I, again, like you read this and you know that he's being serious, but at the same time, it's just I can't help but think he was there is some sort of comedic timing and humor in the yeah. way he does this. So there is a certain breed of Calvinists whom I do not envy, who are always jeering yeah. and sneering as much as ever they can at full assurance of faith. I have seen their long faces. I've heard their whining periods and read their dis, uh, dismal sentences in which they say something to this effect, groan in the Lord always. And again, I say groan. He that mourneth and weepeth, he that doubteth and feareth, he that distrusteth and dishonoreth his God shall be saved. And see, and that's 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 <laughs> hilarious. You know, it, there's a hymn, Rejoice in the Lord Always, and again I say rejoice. You yes. Know? And and I don't know if that hymn was written at this time, you know, or not, but but he's taking the 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 passage of scripture, he's taking that hymn, and instead of rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, he's saying, Groan in the Lord always. And so I want to believe. I want to believe that he said it in that. In like that, he was singing it. Like he's saying yeah. it. I, I want <laughs> to believe that he was singing it, you know, and that it brought a, a smile to everyone's faith, face. I don't know that to be sure. But he says that seems to be the sum and substance of their very ungospel-like gospel. That we always have to just, we have to be down, groan. Yes. Groan. He that mourneth and weepeth, he that doubteth and feareth, and his that's that's the guy who's going to be saved. Right. Well, and we kind of hit on this in the last discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, as Calvinists, we affirm man's inability, man's depravity, and the fact that apart from God's grace, there's nothing that we can do in and of right. ourselves right. to be saved. And sometimes what that ends up doing is uh, once we recognize this truth. Uh, we have sort of an unhealthy um, sort of focus on our own sinfulness to the point, right? It's not that, I I, I don't think you could ever um, overstate your own sinfulness. But the problem comes when our focus, our understanding, our um, emphasis on our own sinfulness uh, turns into a lack of faith, and a doubt in God's ability to save us from that sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And so um, and so that's that's really the type of, of thing that Spurgeon is dealing with here. Um, it's this idea that, you know, we must always, uh, we, we must always have long faces. We must always, uh, gr- you know, uh, mourn and weep over our sin. We can never uh, be uh, uh, joyful. We can never have assurance because, because we are such wretched sinners. Yeah. You see, you no, know, no, no, we know we have to live in a perpetual state of, of, of doubt and of fear and of, um, distress over our own sinfulness. And he says it has th- that kind of feeling, this, this kind of, we have to keep our emotions down. We have to keep our emotions downtrodden and we have to keep our emotions in a slump. He says it has all the elements of self-righteousness in it. He says, I would sooner a man boast in his good works than boast in his good feelings. Because you can deal with a man who boasts in his good works. You have a plain text of scripture, convict him of being a legalist. But this other man boasts that he is no legalist. He can speak very sharply against legality. He knows the truth, yet the truth is not in him in its spirit because he is still looking to his feelings. He says, he says, if you're looking to trying to keep your feelings under subject and that's how you're going to find that you can't have full assurance, you know, because you keep your, he says, man, it's just, it's, it's, it's all twisted up. It's all entangled up knots. It's all just a disaster. And he says, you've, you've wrapped yourself in a place where your glory is in your shame, Yeah, where you're, where you know you are, you are so happy in your 
unhappiness. He says it's just so twisted, it's so backwards. He's, well, and here's what he says sort of at the end of this uh, this objection. He says, you are justifi- justified by faith, not by feelings. Mm-hmm. You are saved by what Christ felt for you, not by what you feel. And the root and basis of salvation is the cross. And other foundations shall no man lay than that which has been laid. Even though he places experience there, he builds wood, hay, and stubble, and not the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus, the Lord. Right. And the point he's making is that, yes, our faith is sort of built upon all of these things, right? Our understanding, our, our knowledge, our experience. But ultimately, the foundation of our faith, the chief cornerstone of our faith is Christ and Christ alone. Right. It's not on whether or not you feel good yeah. about yourself. And, and you know, we kind of see, we see that he, he talks about the Calvinists and how they, you know, groan in the Lord always, I cannot say groan, you know, and, and, and all these kinds of things. That's funny. But we, we get the sense even now in today's time, people are looking for that. They're not looking for an emotional downer, but in today's time, they're looking for an emotional high. Sure. And they, sure. they completely validate their experience based on what they felt. Yes. You know, and... Um, this hyper-emotionalism. Yes. And this hyper-emotionalism that he's talking about is a hyper-emotional down. Yeah. We see a lot... And Almost like a stoic type. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, 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 you know, you kind of get... Yeah, there's jokes about you know the the frozen chosen and stuff like that. There, you right, know, there are right. there are jokes about that that we can never you know. But on the other side of that pendulum, you've got people who man, I didn't experience God unless I felt an emotional high. Yes, and so we unless live, the lights were just right and yeah. the music was just right and the you know the the fog machine had dispense just the right amount of fog and, right you know whether whether or not you know we sang another chorus of break every chain you know mm-hmm. what i mean if, if you know we sang just the right amount and that's when i knew that god was that god had done something because i yeah, felt him i didn't feel a full assurance i can't have a full assurance unless there be an emotional high yeah and and that kind of i have i've frankly encountered that maybe more in our time today uh in, in our you know in our uh, in our area where we live and we're in the buckle of the Bible belt, I, I've maybe encountered that more than what Spurgeon has. And just because here in the South, um, you know, we don't run into as many Calvinists. We certainly don't run into many Calvinist Baptists, right, you know. Right. And so I have experienced it, but maybe not to the level that there are people on the other side of those feelings spectrum that say, you know what, if I haven't had the high, yeah, I haven't had assurance. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, what Spurgeon is laying out is he's saying there are some objections. People think that full assurance is not possible. Um, and he deals with each of these objections one by one. And he basically puts all of them to rest. Mm-hmm. Um, you think that full assurance is impossible? Well, the scriptures tell us that it's possible. Mm-hmm. So guess what? Your argument's done. Oh, uh, you know, you think full assurance is impossible, uh, because, um, you can't, uh, physically grasp it or because you, uh, don't like the fact that other people have full assurance. Well, guess what? Just because you don't have it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. And he completely walks through and dispels them all. And by the time he gets through this section, you're ready for, okay, well, all these objectors have thrown up these things and they're quickly, easily, and logically they're dispelled. So he primes you to jump to the next section. So and, and, and let's be yeah. clear: simply uh, dealing with the objections, you know, in themselves is not a proof. Yeah. And so, yes, he's told you that the objections are wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean that assurance, full assurance, is possible, right? He's he, he's put to rest the objections, but you haven't you haven't positively proven that yeah. full assurance is possible. And that's when he goes to the second section, which is to hear the text. Let's hear the text, you know, and yeah. he jumps in at it. And, and so in, at the beginning of this first section, he says, let's hear the text. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. The first thing the text seems to say is that David had his doubts. Yeah. Otherwise, why would he pray for, for why, why would he pray, say, say unto my soul, I am your salvation? And we know that, that David had all, I mean, his life was a roller coaster. Yeah. So, I mean, if anyone maybe had a right to have doubts, David would have been one of those people. Yes. And the point that he that Spurgeon makes is he says, cheer up, Christian brother. If David doubted, that must not say, I am no Christian because I have doubts. 
the best of believers sometimes are troubled with fears and anxieties. Mm-hmm. Abraham had the greatest faith, but he still had some unbelief. I mm-hmm. envy the brother who can say that his faith never wavered. He can say more than David did, for David had a cause to cry, saying to my soul, I am your salvation. And so the point he's making is that like there are some, there are some whose faith never wavers. And he says, and I envy that that brother. I envy that brother who's, who can say uh, truthfully that my faith has never wavered. Yeah. And he's like, but even the giants of the faith, Abraham, David, even they dealt with unbelief. Yeah. And he says, he says, even though they dealt with that unbelief, they, man, they weren't going to just stay there. Yes, they were going to. They were going to absolutely. David prays, say unto my soul, I want full assurance. I want in every fiber of who I am. Say unto my soul, I am your salvation. I need to not be in this place of doubt. Yeah. And so we see the first thing is that we recognize in the first thing in the text, we recognize David had doubts, Mm -hmm. which is why he prayed for assurance. And then the next thing the text says is that David was not content in his doubts and his fears. Uh, But he knew that to have doubts and fears, although natural, was not good, which is why he prayed. And then the third thing. Uh, that the text says is that David knew where to obtain full assurance. Mm-hmm. You notice he didn't say, um, you know, uh, I'm struggling with assurance. Therefore, I'm going to start going to church more. Yeah. Therefore, I need to read my Bible. A little I'm more. only going to listen to Christian music. Yeah. I'm only going to watch the Christian movies. Right. Yeah. He, he doesn't put any like focus on himself and the things he can do. Again, the sealing of the Holy Spirit is a passive act. That's something that's done to us. So where does David go? He recognize we see he has doubts. He knows that those doubts are not a good thing. And so then what does he do? He he prays. He, he looks to God. He looks to God. He yeah. looks to Yahweh. Say unto my soul, I am your salvation. And I love the way that, that Spurgeon works it. And maybe maybe it's because it's Spurgeon. I like it so much. I don't if I heard this, I don't know. If I heard this from some of the preachers today, I might be like, oh my goodness, I might roll my eyes up. He says, he knows that knee work is that by which faith is increased. And there, in his closet, he cries out to the Most High, saying yes. to my soul, I am salvation. So the, the I love how he says his knee work, is yeah. the, you know, which is the exact opposite from where you do work from. Yes. You, know, you, don't, you don't often do work from your knees. You stand at a place to where you have, where you can be confident and firm. He's saying knee work, a place of humility. A place of prayer. Yeah. That's where you got to do work. Yeah. And uh, another thing um, that he points out is that David cannot be content unless his assurance has a vivid personality. Right? Mm -hmm. He says, say unto my soul, I am your salvation. Mm -hmm. Not saying to my soul, I have given you salvation or that, you know, salvation is is possible Mm -hmm. or salvation is true. He says, I am your salvation. This salvation has a personality to it. There's personhood ascribed to this salvation. And obviously, knowing what we know from the entirety of Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, that that person that accomplished his salvation is Jesus Christ Christ himself. And the thing is, is remember as well the context of the verse. He's surrounded by a series of foes, furious foes, Uh, intense opposition from these enemies. And it's in the midst of all of this uh, turmoil and all of these enemies that he doesn't look, he say, well, in the victory is my salvation. Yes. He doesn't look and he doesn't say in the overcoming is my salvation. Whether he goes down because of these enemies or not, no matter what the outcome is of his present situation, saying to my soul, I am your salvation. Right. I being God. God, you, God, are my salvation. No matter what these people do to me, no matter what spears or bows come against me, no matter how fierce their army is, you are my salvation. And whether you let me die in the battlefield, whether I am victorious, you're here and you're the salvation. Yeah. And, you know, going a little bit deeper... Uh, Spurgeon makes this point as well. He says, note again that David wants present assurance. He Mm -hmm. does not say, say unto my soul, I will be your salvation. Mm -hmm. But he says, I am your salvation. And yet that am, as you will see, if you look in the text, is not in the original. It's in italics. It has been supplied by our translators. 
And again, that's a note from the King James translation, which is based on the Texas Receptus. I do not believe that the uh, Legacy Standard Bible has that in italics. I do believe that in the Nessialan text, that am is there. I might be wrong about this. Again, I'm not a Greek say, scholar. Uh, no, it says, say unto my soul, I am your salvation. But it doesn't have that am in italics, right? It does not. Yeah. And so, but in the King James, right, which is based on a, a different underlying Greek text, uh, that am is in italics um, because that am is not in the original. And this is one of the points that Spurgeon makes. And he says that word am is man's word, not God's. Therefore, I will say little of it. Uh, so basically what he's saying is that in, instead of reading, right, if we were to read it in the original Greek language, again, this is why it's important to at least have some familiarity with the Greek language. There are tons of resources online uh, that you can utilize to, to become familiar with the Greek language. Uh, but if we were to read this in the Texas Receptus, the original Greek, it would simply say, say unto my soul, I, thy salvation. And the point that Spurgeon makes is that uh, basically the the am in there can be used in different tenses, right? Yeah. It's used okay. in the present yeah, tense yeah, yeah. in our text. I am thy salvation. You could also use it in the future tense. I will be your salvation, or you could use it in the past tense. I have been, or I, you know, I have been your salvation. And he says, rightly, there is no word at, there at all. You can learn as much from God's silence as you can from his speech. And I think this silence means just this. There is no word put there at all because full assurance enables the Christian to say of God, he was my salvation before the worlds began. He is my salvation now, and he will be when the worlds shall pass away. Right. So you can basically put up this prayer, this prayer of David, say unto my soul, I am your salvation. You can put it up as a Christian in any tense. You can put it up and say unto my soul, I will be your salvation, right? Praying for the full assurance that God will carry us until the end, that he will preserve us till the end. You can say it in the present tense, Lord, say unto my soul, I am your salvation. I need present tense assurance in this moment when I'm surrounded by my enemies. Yeah. Uh, in this moment of distress, or you can say in the past, you can look to the cross and say, God, Christ has been my salvation. Say unto my soul, I have been your salvation. Say unto my soul, I have dealt with your sins. Your yes. sins have been put away. You have been saved. Right. right. And so, um, you know, again, Spurgeon doesn't make too much of this, but I, I, I so appreciate the fact that he says that he, he understands the text enough to go, this wasn't in the original. And that there's application for us mm -hmm. that like that fact has application for us. Yeah. We can pray this in any tense and it would be an appropriate prayer for us to pray. Yeah. Yeah. And that past, present or future. Yes. It's applicable. It's applicable because past, present and future salvation is all of God. That's right. It was, it is, and it will be all of God. That's right. And so he, he goes to the text. He looks at it there. He says that not only do these objectors get dispelled, but the text itself points to the reality that there is a full assurance. David is praying to God. Yes. And what is he praying for? Even in the midst of evidence that would say there can be no assurance, he is praying, God, you are the assurance. Yes. And say that unto my soul. You are my salvation, God. He is my assurance. He is where I find my hope. He is where I find rescue. Maybe not from the enemies around him, but salvation for sure from sin, from wickedness, from death itself. Christ is the salvation. God is his salvation. And so he goes, he says, hear the objectors, hear the text, and then he goes on to hear the preacher. Yes. And so here, I mean, he's talking about himself. I mean, of course, hear the preacher, hear me, hear Spurgeon, and, and those kinds of things. He We did kind of, when we were reading through this, we there is a section where he has a, he has kind of a, uh, well, that was actually in the previous section here, the text. He had the, he had the, yeah, he the, had the, the back and forth, was the back the and forth. Section. Yes. In the previous section. Yeah. And it kind of, excuse me. Yeah. So that primes your pump for it. Now hear the preacher, right? Hear what the preacher has to say. Hear what I have to say, because there is wisdom in, in even what, what is going to be said here. So what is he, is he, is he being egotistical here? Is he being arrogant when he says, hear the preacher? Is he, is he now saying now I'm putting myself equal with the text or anything like that. Is he doing anything like that? Well, no, absolutely not. Um, 
But what he's doing in here, the preacher, is he's basically, this is where he's making his exhortation yeah. to the congregation. And, and and so he's dealt with the objectors. He's explained to you what the text means. And so now he's saying, hear this exhortation from the preacher. Here's, I'm going to show you how this applies to you. Mm-hmm. And I need you to hear me yeah. explain this to you. It's almost, uh, he's almost, I'm going to implore you. I'm going to, I'm going to call to you. Now, now is the moment of application. Uh, maybe perhaps for it. Right. Would be and a, so a term he, we put today. Um, he, he, he goes on to say, it has been a matter of concern with you to find out your pedigree, but you never asked, is God my father? Mm-hmm. You have made quite sure of the title deeds of your estate, but you never took the trouble to ask whether heaven was yours or not. And possibly some of you have imbibed the notion that it is a very easy thing to be saved, that there is no need to trouble your heads about it much. That so long as you do your duty, attend your church, or frequent your chapel, it is well and good, and there is no use in making a fuss about being born again and having a new heart and a right spirit. I may never have your ear again, but mark this, at the day of judgment, I will be quit of your blood if you perish in your delusion. And what he's trying to lay out is that you spend so much time and effort to make sure things are in order, Mm -hmm. to make sure things in your Mm -hmm. life are in order. But you have not spent any time or effort to see if salvation is truly yours, to contemplate your yeah. own salvation, to pursue full assurance, to ask for full assurance, to ask God, say unto my soul, I am your salvation. Right. You haven't done these things. And he basically says that you are delusional if you haven't done these things. And he says, oh, there are millions of Englishmen who think they are Christians because they were sprinkled in infancy with holy drops and because they have come to the Lord's table. Yes. Whereas little do they know that every time they have come there, they did eat and drink damnation to themselves because they did not discern the Lord's body. And he's saying you didn't come to salvation. You didn't trouble yourselves or things because you put your your faith maybe in in something that could yeah. not could not save you. You didn't go to God for your assurance. You didn't go to him for your salvation like David did, like David modeled. No, maybe went went to I was sprinkled as a child, or I've had the Lord's Supper, or yeah. these kinds of things. And you are not making the use of your time to consider honestly and painstakingly, have I put my trust in Christ? Do I have this full assurance based upon what God has done? Or am I putting it in something else? And he says, this is the the delusion of England. We have not half so much to dread popery, right? Mm -hmm. Papism, Roman Catholic Church, as we have that nominal Christianity fostered by a national church, that nominal Christianity, which has no root or soul within it. And obviously, the Church of England is the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a Protestant denomination. And although England had sort of an established Protestant state church, he's saying that uh, it doesn't matter if our sort of national church is Protestantism, if it's not true faith, if it's just this nominal Christianity. And we could probably yeah. say similar things about, like you said, being in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. Oh, we yeah. live in the South where everybody's saved. Everybody was raised in church. Everybody goes to church. Everybody's a member of a good Southern Baptist church. Everybody's trying to do the right thing. Everybody's trying to be a Christian. Everybody's trying to follow God, all yada, 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 and so on and so forth. And the reality is, is that this sort of, you know, uh, sort of good old Southern, you know, Bible Belt Christianity um, is at its very core, a nominal Christianity. Yeah. And, and the problem when you have such a pervasive or one of the issues when you have such a pervasive Christian impact in a society is that it produces this nominal Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a good thing that, you know, sort of the culture in the South is is a Christian culture. I'd much rather prefer that than, you know, some of the other religions. Yeah. Um, and so it's a good thing that we have a largely Christian culture. It's a good thing that our nation's founding was based on Christian principles. Yeah. But one of the issues we have is that people people equate sort of Christian principles with true Christian living or the, they equate Christian culture with true Christianity. And because they live in a Christian culture, 
they never consider whether they have full assurance or not. Yes. They never they never they never look at their selves in light of the gospel. They never and they're just comfortable. Well, I'm I'm comfortable here. And and he says, Oh fools, miserable fools, if some of you should say, I do not know whether I have a cancer or no, I should say, seek the physician and inquire if there be a fear. But to say, I do not know whether I am in the bonds of iniquity and the gall of bitterness or no is awful indeed. And he says, You don't you're sitting here and you're comfortable in your community and you don't even ask the question, if I have a sin problem, if I have a cancer, yes. which is this, you don't even ask that question because you've, you've inundated yourselves and you've, you've, you've wooed yourself to sleep because of the climate that you live in. He says, you need to make it known today if you have a full assurance in God or yeah. not. And one, of, and one of the things he, um, you know, he says, which again is just one of those zingers, right? He says, this is the curse and plague of England that we have so much profession and so little possession. Yes. And that's, I do think that's a mark of, of our day as well, is that we have a wide profession of faith, a wide profession of Christianity, a wide profession of uh, uh, of biblical truth, and yet there's so little possession of mm-hmm. these things. And again, because we live in a culture that's been so largely impacted by the Christian faith and by the truths of Christianity, we just assume that our Christian faith is taking place by osmosis, mm-hmm. that I have no need to contemplate my own assurance. I have no need to really do the knee work, to, to get on my knees in, in prayer before God and say, say unto my soul, I am your salvation, to look to Christ for our salvation because we just think, well, I grew up in the church. Well, I raised my hand during a revival service one day or I walked an aisle or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and, and like you said, the issue is whether or not you have been born again, not whether you were raised in a Christian church or not, not whether or not you grew up in a Christian society or Christian culture. Yeah. It's about whether or not have you actually been saved. And if we don't take the time, if we don't do the work to actually find out whether or not that's the case, then like he said, we're, we're miserable, miserable fools. And so hearing the preacher, he ends his sermon. He says, but do you wish to be saved? Does the Spirit of God whisper to you, escape, escape? There is forgiveness still. There is forgiveness now. There is forgiveness for thee. Trust Christ, sinner, mm-hmm. and you shall be saved. Saved this moment. Believe in him now with all your guilt and sin about you. May the Holy Ghost now lead you to trust my Lord and Master. And you may go home assured that he hath forever put away your sin and you are accepted and blessed in him. May God bless you, each one of you now and ever. Amen. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of assurance, and we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now, this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you learn what it means to place your hope and assurance of salvation upon Christ and Christ alone. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from Northclay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives.